This is 30 Wood, a podcast celebrating the 30th anniversary of Fernwood Publishing. In this series, we talk to Fernwood authors about their work, their activism, and why radical publishing is so critical. This episode is a conversation with AJ Withers. AJ is currently the Ruth Wynn Woodward Junior Chair at Simon Fraser University. Their activism focuses on housing justice and disability justice. And their latest book, Fight to Win, Inside Poor People's Organizing, was published by Fernwood in 2021. Withers is a font of knowledge, and this is a really fun conversation for anybody that is curious about the process of social change, the collective work of writing about social change, and how we navigate those relationships that can bring together campaigns to change the world. AJ Withers, welcome. Hi, Nora. Thanks so much for having me. Can you describe yourself for listeners who either don't know your work or are familiar with your work uh, and are happy to hear your voice again? For sure. Um, I am currently the Ruth Wynn Woodward Junior Chair in Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at Simon Fraser University. And I'm a longtime social justice activist around housing and homelessness and, and poverty and disability justice issues. In, from Toronto, uh, I was organizing for about 20 years and very recently moved to Vancouver. And I've written three books, uh, Disability Politics in Fernwood, which is uh, in Fernwood. <laughs> it's a Fernwood book, Disability Politics and Theory, and a Violent History of Benevolence, Interlocking Oppressions, in the Moral Economies of Social Working, which I co-authored with Chris Chapman. And then my most recent book is Fight to Win Inside Poor People's Organizing. That work spans uh, more than a decade, if I'm not wrong. How has your writing changed and evolved over the years? It's become much more, I'd say, nuanced and specific. I've become... I think much more detail oriented in the work that I've done and much more profuse. So uh, Disability Politics and Theory is a short book. And then my second book, the first draft that we had was 750 pages. Um, and the first draft I had of Fight to Win was about 500 pages. And so wow. <laughs> I've gone from from like working really hard to have enough to say to fill a book to just having like way too much to say and um, becoming a bit of an over researcher and figuring out how to um, how to sort of tune into a really clear narrative thread instead of being all over the place. Mm. There's a lot of parallels to activism, you know, especially when you're fighting a system that is complex and difficult to describe to people and, you know, naming experiences that that folks might have, but that might not understand the inner workings of government and policy and all this kind of thing. So how how much did you uh, rely on the communication experiences that you had in activism when you were writing these books and trying to digest and condense and synthesize your activist experience into writing? I think that's a really hard question to answer because 
entirely in many ways. Like I am, I wouldn't be writing without that. And I, I view, like I started writing because as an activist who's disabled, there just wasn't anything that was useful for people. Um, and so it's one thing to say, like, go educate yourself. It's your responsibility to educate yourself. But when there's really nowhere to point people, it becomes really frustrating. And so um, that's why I wrote Disability Politics and Theory really as part of a larger activist project. And um, both the other books are sort of political interventions. And so they're part of an activist project and they draw deeply from my activist experience. And Fight to Win is um, like sort of brings those conversations with people in government alive, I hope. Anyways, in a lot of ways, um, it tries to capture what what we were talking with and against people in power and also the conversations that we were having or that they were having behind the scenes through freedom of information requests. So, um, yeah, I was really, I, I don't feel like I can separate my kind of activist experience from my writing experience. Mm. Now, Fight to Win was published in 2021, which was not that long ago. Um, but looking at uh, that and the other books that you've written, are there ways that you would have changed or updated your approach or analysis? Or are you pretty happy with the way things have stood the test of time? Um, no, absolutely. I like. I think it's really important that we are always learning <laughs> And um, that is something that I certainly am always doing. And so with my first book, before I got the physical copy of the book, I already had things as part of sort of my fundamental framework that I no longer really held to. And it's, it's fine. <laughs> um, but... Uh, there's like just little pieces that um, that I just wished that I could change immediately. And then as an author, as I'm sure you know, Nora, like you just sort of get fixed in time with your books and you grow and people are re referring to you as who you are at a certain point when you're not that person anymore. Um, but with um, so with disability politics and theory, I'm really lucky because I'm working on a second edition right now. So I get to make those interventions however I want. And with that one also, I'm working to sort of show my changes and be accountable for the places that I think that I was actually really deeply problematic um, instead of just erasing them. And with Fight to Win too, um, like I'm writing about a very specific period of time and that situation is evolving and changing 
And so my understanding of things has changed, but also even within the book, the way that I talk about things changes. And so in the last chapter, I say, oh, look here, how I'm talking about things has changed. (laughs) Note that I'm using a different word now here than I do throughout the book, where through the book, I use the word homeless and I defend the use of that word. And then in the last chapter, I'm like, no, I'm using the word unhoused and here's why. (laughs) Because people in it, because I'm now I'm working with people in encampments and their tents are their homes. Um, But up till this point, I wasn't working with people in encampments and they used the language homeless. And now today I use the word dehoused. And um, that captures like the active injustice that happens through that process rather than being a passive state. But I also kind of go back and forth between those words because people don't understand the context of that word. But so that's just like one example of how my understanding has shifted and sometimes it shifts really rapidly and and the book is is fixed. And I, I find that example sort of amusing because it happens in the book and then the book comes out and sort of shortly after it happens again. And uh, I think that's one thing with that I've really learned in life is I've become much more compassionate with authors and with people of just like giving them space to grow and change because I want people to give me that space and to give me that compassion. Well, and a lot of that goes to writing practice, uh, the, the practice of thinking through how to articulate things and putting words to the page and, you know, editing the heck out of those words. <laughs> Talk to me a bit about your writing practice. Um, you know, you're, you're well known as an activist, um, and I'd love to hear how that activist approach uh, seeps into your writing. Um, so I think I really look to my writing and increasingly understand it as something that is the knowledge that I'm trying to put into words as something that's collectively produced. And um, I increasingly understand that like at a very deep level that there's not a single word that I can write without having had years of conversations with folks and without having people around me to be able to take it to engage with it. Um, But especially with Fight to Win, where I'm writing about organizing that people are actively doing, actively talking to people about what we're doing, interviewing people, and then there's people in the group that are reading it over and we're having fights about what I'm saying. Um, that is like such a collective process and, um, all of, all of us, if we're, if we have radical politics, those politics are, are collectively produced and, and through time, like on the shoulders of generations of, of people who have been doing that work to push politics forward. So that's, I think, really a fundamental piece for me 
And then another piece is to have it be um, a part of my practice of um, political intervention. And as a disabled person who sometimes goes for long periods of time without being able to leave my house, it's something that I can do that it that is a, a useful kind of piece to support the movement that I can do from bed. And um, that's other kinds of writing too. That's writing press releases or what have you. But in doing research and, and writing uh, is something that I try and do every day, regardless of what I have going on. So um, when I had an incredible back injury and was like on hydromorphone, I would still try and write. And sometimes that would be like a paragraph a day, but just to not fall out of the practice and to stay, because if you, if I stop writing <laughs> and give it a, a long break, I forget where I am and it takes a long time to come back into it. Um, but if I keep up the practice, it's so much easier to keep it up. So I try and work every day for at least half an hour. And um, I think for me, that is a way, it's sort of like a ritualistic way of um, making sure that I keep my head attached to whatever project I'm working on. I especially love how you weaved uh, or wove, <laughs> um, talking about the collective and the individual, because as an activist who writes, I think about this also all the time, that there's this collective knowledge that, uh, as you say, it goes is generations deep, uh, that it can only be created through the collective struggle of whatever movements that we're involved in. But then you find yourself, you know, by yourself, maybe in bed, maybe at a desk, maybe both in the course of a day. Uh, trying to actually put this into writing. And I, I mean, I I feel like on the left, like we, we don't really have enough discussions about that practice to kind of demystify it or to make it uh, really obvious for people who maybe are interested in writing, but feel like for whatever reason, it's not like their place or their thing that they could do because maybe they don't think they can write or maybe they don't have confidence. So do you work with other activists on their writing practice or do you have conversations with people or how do the conversations that you do have about the collective work go when you're translating that into your into into the more individualist writing of, of you know, a book or of, of articles or whatever? Yeah, I absolutely talk with people about it. And um, it's a, a really difficult thing, I think, because there's some people like you and I who our names get put on things because we do the act of sitting down. And it's a, it's a hard thing to write a book or to write an article, and it takes a lot of time. Um, and... And so our names are, are put on them and we might have extensive acknowledgements, but um, there's also like a lot of cred credibility and um, money, sometimes not a lot of money <laughs> in Canada, <laughs> but like I have a, a, an academic title, you know, and that is meaningful 
And I ended up like going into academia because being a grad student was a job that I could do given my disability. Um, but it also gives me a lot of social capital. And so I, I have a responsibility there. I think that's a, a big one. Um, so working with academics and activists, like radical acad academics who are activists and other activists, I think is um, the absolute least I can do. <laughs> and um, so when folks are who I know are thinking about writing a book, I sort of just have this basic like, we'll have, we can have two conversations. We'll have this conversation and I'll tell you all this stuff. And then once you have your proposal ready, or once you are um, like actively engaged with the publisher, we can have a 45 minute conversation where you now have very real questions about this process. And we can chat in between, but we'll have like two sort of long conversations that I'll commit to you. And I give people my book proposals or I read things through and, and um, really try and help people not make the mistakes that I've made and demystify that process. Um, because one thing I think that just for everyone to know is that um, publishers need authors. And so there's a profound power imbalance when people are trying to get published, but folks should um, really try, once they have a contract, like take their power back and work to um, assert what they need with their books, which is something that was a hard lesson to me. And I gave up a lot. Uh, initially. And um, so I think talking to people about writing is really key. So I have those sort of professional conversations with folks. I have practice conversations with folks. I like just have work dates with folks. And then I also work with the activist groups that I work with to sort of build up research literacy and capacity so that I'm not exploiting them um, and other people aren't exploiting them. Mm. Um, and I think that it's really important that people not just have like the baseline of informed consent, but be able to meaningfully participate in like deep decisions about stuff, which means understanding methodology. And so over time, like working with people so they understand what those words mean, what those processes are, so that they can have participate in that way. And it means also that they can take on meaningful co-authorship or authorship roles because they um, they can fully participate and, and make decisions in in those kinds of articles, as well as sort of more activist community articles. One of the things that I think a lot about in Canada is just how little we have documented on about the left and especially struggle in the 1990s and the 2000s. And I guess we're in the 2010s, too. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. I, 
I think about my experience in the student movement and how there's nothing that I'm aware of that that really tries to give a uh, a history of where things were in that movement. And so in 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 Fight to Win, you do that kind of archival work or you do that looking back kind of work. Why is that kind of work important? Why is it important for, for left-wing people to document our own history? I think it's really critical that people understand what movements are actually made of and how people fight back. But One of my frustrations with left-wing work is that it is so often just profoundly misleading that um, people are, are doing two things at once. They're trying to build their organizations slash the movement and also trying to tell people what they or like document their history and um they are often at counter purposes because it's really hard to speak accurately and honestly about the work that you're doing at the same time that you're telling people hey come join my group and so um it the result is you is like almost always really glossy and shiny accounts of what groups are doing that then activists read and think that they are wholly inadequate because they aren't able to produce consensus decision-making processes that are completely unproblematic and work really smoothly, for example. And so with this book, I wanted to look at the details of the work that we were doing and sort of move beyond a lot of that. So in focusing on the labor, trying to escape that trap that um, that people are inevitably in and that like I still, as a member of OCAP, um, you know, went in with a, I won't harm OCAP. And so there's things that I left out of the book, obviously. Um, But there's not thing, but I also worked to write very honestly about what was happening and focusing on the little details, I think meant meant it that people could look at the like day to day of what it took to do the organizing rather than writing sort of a glossy, like, this is what direct action casework is and, and aren't we great, um, focusing on the, the, what's happening actually on the ground of the labor of direct action casework. And um, those histories, I think, are really useful. Or I think a history of the student movement would be really useful now because it could get into the drama Um, And the conflict in a way that you can't do with current movements. And like, I certainly couldn't do with OCAP, like um, it it would have been wholly inappropriate of me to talk about like whatever um, conflict or stuff like that was happening in the organization, but I didn't need to 
do that because I was focusing on the day-to-day labor. Mm. And I, I love that because it's there's just such a, a lack, I think, a generalized lack of knowledge of what that day-to-day looks like in any organization. And, you know, on the left, it's that grunt work that wins. It's the grunt work that that gets us through to the next victory or that, you know, allows us to care for one another or that keeps our groups together or whatever. And as there are so few places where people can go to learn about these things and as, you know, struggle, organized struggle is in a bit of a difficult spot these days, people aren't necessarily finding those kinds of groups to learn firsthand. I'm certainly, I find myself very worried about like, well, where do you learn how to do these things and learn how to navigate the the tensions, the the interpersonal questions, the strategic debates, like unless you're in the trenches, it can be really difficult to actually to, 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 to practice that stuff and to learn about what it feels like and how to navigate it. Um, and so I think it's really wonderful that 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 you that you've put this down, that you've that you've given people uh, something to um, to be able to to see what that looks like or what that looked like um, in, in, in your experience. Thanks. Yeah, I think um, the. I'm not sure fully um, how well I captured how hard it is. <laughs> I don't know how you can capture that in, in real words, but I think that I, um, at, in the uh, second last chapter, I tell a lot of stories that are sort of short and all of the many, many things that the city does to try and stop us from being effective. And, um, I think that I, uh, demonstrate how, um, I get through a lot of the gloss that, uh, I give a, a realistic picture of the day to day of organizing, um, within those campaigns. And, yeah, I think it is important for people to have a realistic idea of what organizing is. There's a whole bunch of OCAP that I say that I'm I'm leaving out because it doesn't fit into those campaigns. And one of the places that I got that when I was younger was reading histories of of movements gone by and there's some use in that, but it's they're also like, you know, reading about armed movements in the seventies is just profoundly different than, than reading about what's happening right now. So I hope other people take on trying to break through that sort of production of movement mythology to produce like really day-to-day accounts of, of their organizing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like my dream is to have a history of the student movement and then 10 other histories of the exact same moment. Yeah. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about what you think of uh, movements today. And I, I imagine that you feel a lot of the same despair that I feel. But what are the movements that you are most inspired by right now? I I do feel a lot of the same despair. I'm sure. I don't know what exact your despair is, but things are really, really hard. and in working around um, stuff around homelessness. Like I say in the book, 
things were so unimaginably bad. And then things got so much worse. And now they're even worse. And like they keep becoming so much worse than I imagined they could be. And um, just at the same time, complete new levels of normalization of how terrible things are. And there are small pockets of resistance that are really exciting. There's like a lot of amazing work that's happening in LA that um, that dehoused folks and their allies have been doing that I think is uh, a really exciting and a, a good place to look in terms of organizing efforts. Um, it's like, a, it just seems like there, Bill Ayers says that there's mountain times and there's valley times. And it really feels like these are valley times. And that these times are times of, uh, I'm going to totally butcher this quote, but um, they're times to like blow on the embers of history and to remember. And um, as we're like watching this um, really rise of authoritarianism and I'm I'm no like liberal democrat but even this ab abandonment of democracy um I think that folks really taking a breath to reevaluate what actually has worked and how to talk about our movements in order to build strong movements is pretty key right now because we've been failing uh, pretty tremendously. And I, I don't know what, what the answers are to stop failing because uh, things are obviously loaded very unfairly, but um, the, there are these like, pockets and moments of mass resistance that I find really promising, like, you know, what's just happened in Brazil, for example. And um, yeah, so there's lots of lots of places of hope, but I think uh, we kind of collectively need to get our shit together. And part of that is about like looking at how to really accurately talk about movements as a way of bringing people in and keeping them in in order to really sustainably fight. I have several rapid fire questions for you, but before I get there, the one question that I'm making sure I ask every guest on this podcast is perhaps an obvious one, but why is radical independent publishing so important to you? It's so important to have a space for authors to have an 
uncensored voice. My uh, second book that I co-authored with Chris Chapman, we went with an academic press because of academic things. Um, and uh, we had a lovely editor and then that editor left. And then we had an editor who writes war fiction for children as a hobby. Oh. And um, it became very difficult for our book. <laughs> um, and just like a fundamental, our feeling like of a fundamental not understanding anything that we're saying. And um, to have like radical spaces where there's support for radical politics and radical voices, I think is incredibly important. And those spaces being independent um, keeps them being able to be radical. Um, and they're not hiring people who write war fiction for youth. Um, they're hiring people that are gonna be supportive of people who do radical work. And I think that that's really key. Totally, totally. Okay, so first rapid fire question. What is your favorite place to read and what is your favorite place to write? Okay, I mean, that's two questions, but <laughs> there you go. My favorite place to read is on transit. Mostly I do my reading in transit. <laughs> Maybe not favorite, but <laughs> it's where I read. Um, my favorite place to write, I'm looking for one in Vancouver since I've moved here. I have an office for the first time. So right now that's my temporary favorite place. But um, in Toronto, it was always writing in the park. But Vancouver's climate isn't um, as accommodating for daily park writing. So I'm trying to figure out, um, figure that out. And it's really, really important to have, for me, like to have a daily space that I go and I write. And uh, obviously the park is a seasonal one anyways, but uh, yeah, space is really key in terms of um, being like feeling good about writing. So I'm working on it. Mm -hmm. What books do you have on your to-read pile right now? Leslie Kern's Gentrification is Inevitable and Other Lies is at the top. I have a lot of books on my to-read list. So I'll just give you a couple. Displacement City, Fighting for Health and Housing in a Pandemic, which is edited by Greg Cook and Kathy Crow. And it has contributions from a whole bunch of activists, allies, and dehoused books. I have a chapter in it that I co-authored with Derek Black, but I haven't cracked the spine yet because I uh, I haven't cracked it open because um, I haven't had time. So I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and also Lamar Jarrell Bruce's How to Go Mad Without Losing Your Mind, Madness and Black Radical Creativity. And then lastly, Heroin, an Illustrated History by Susan C. Boyd, which is just out from Fernwood. Awesome. 
That's awesome. Do you have a ritual that prepares you to write? No, uh, like going somewhere is the most helpful thing for me. And then my ritual is just, is working every day. Like even if it's half an hour, um, and really, you know, uh, on the 25th, I won't. And there's maybe two or three days in the year that that's the case, but otherwise that's my ritual. Hmm. What are you doing these days for fun? Um, I do when, when my body lets me, uh, art and craft stuff. So my kind of staple one is wood burning and um, which isn't just studying fires. It's like drawing pictures <laughs> in, in, into wood with fire. Um, but also sometimes drawing or other, um, other art stuff, rubber stamping. What is a book that's changed your life? That was a really hard one. It's always, uh, there's a lot of books. <laughs> um, so I think, uh, Exile and Pride by Eli Clare is one. Um, and that one, it's an old book. Um, it came out in 99 and I read it in 2000 or 2001. Um, it's a lovely read. Eli Claire is a very um, beautiful writer. and um, But it's the first book that I read that just like I saw myself in as a queer disabled person. I, and it like has an anti-capitalist analysis and um, some of the analysis is really lacking as Claire would definitely say themselves. But uh, at this point, and a second edition has come out as also. Um, but I think for folks who are marginalized, being able to see yourself in radical text is really important. And that's the first one for me. And with disability stuff at the time, there was nothing. Now there's just been so much, which is amazing. But that was really key for me. Mm. Who's someone you look up to or admire? Also so many people. And like what I was talking about, about the collective production of knowledge, like those people are the everyday folks around me um, are the people that I look up to most because uh, they're the folks that have actually taught me the most. One of the key ones is Gaetan Aru, mm. who is a longtime frontline worker in the downtown East. He also, of Toronto, he also co-authored a book called um, Toronto's poor. And it's a lovely account of resistance in, in Toronto, sort of through the history of the colonial city. And he is, um, just really committed to resistance and building power amongst poor folks in Toronto. And I talk about him in Fight to Win 
because I, because he's just so appreciated and loved in the neighborhood. And if I was doing outreach for OCAP, a lot of people are just like, who the hell are you? And I'd be like, I'm from OCAP. And that, like lots of people would know the group. Many people wouldn't. And I would just say, do you know Gaetan? And almost always the person would be like, oh yeah, Gaetan. <laughs> and I'd just be like, I work with Gaetan. Mm. Um, and having worked in the neighborhood for 30 years, almost everyone knew and really respected him. I've never met anyone that didn't like him. Uh, which is just a lot to say for someone. And he's really taught me a lot about like compassion and being nice to people when they aren't necessarily being nice back and um, long-term organizing. So that's, mm. that's just someone that I look up to. And people should read his book. Where can people get your books? They can get um, them through the Fernwood website and at your lefty bookstore. Uh, Disability and Politics and Theory, you can probably only get through Fernwood at this point or evil places. Um, but the other two, most likely at your lefty bookstore. And if they don't have it, you can always ask them to order it. They probably will. Yeah. <laughs> AJ Withers, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nora. You've been listening to my conversation with AJ Withers as part of the 30 Wood podcast series. Episodes come out every two weeks, so be sure to check back to hear your favorite Fernwood authors. 30 Wood is hosted and produced by me, Nora Loretto, with lots of help from the team at Fernwood. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share your favorite episodes. Fortress of magnitude, they can't subdue. Liberation is radical. You're telling me my dreams have to be practical when all these global systems are tyrannical. Point of view, more than two.